All right, we'll do some introductions as we let people continue to join. Uh, my name is Chris Carroll. I am a pediatric intensivist from Connecticut Children's. Today we're going to be talking with uh, a couple of experts on this new multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And I'd like to introduce them to you, Dr. Adrian Randolph. I'll let Dr. Randolph introduce herself. I am Adrian Randolph. I'm also a pediatric intensivist like Chris. Um, I work at Boston Children's Hospital and I'm affiliated with a professor of anesthesia and pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. And I am the clinical lead on the Overcoming COVID-19 study. Thank you, Dr. Randolph. I'm really excited to have you join us today. And uh, Dr. Manish Patel from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, my name is Manish Patel. I'm an emergency uh, medicine physician who's an epidemiologist at uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and work with the Overcoming Network. I typically work in influenza, um, looking at uh, the, how well vaccines work and don't work and the epidemiology of influenza and viral respiratory diseases um, and uh, the natural fit here is to look at uh, uh, covid through the Overcoming Network. Thank you. This is a, this will be a great talk today. And we also have Dr. Nancy Stewart, who's going to be joining us to, um, uh, to help uh, moderate and do some questions from the audience. Uh, Dr. Stewart? Hi. Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm Dr. Nancy Stewart. I'm pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at University of Kansas. Excellent. Welcome. So we'll get started. Um, so, uh, Dr. Randolph, um, can you tell us a little bit about what got you um, interested in this and how you got started um, looking at this? Yes. Um, so, uh, Chris, uh, the, uh, there's a network that, Chris, you're involved with as well called the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators Network that uh, we started in um, early 2000s um, and now has 80 pediatric sites across the United States. Um, we joined together to do large studies, and we also have a sub-network um, that's focused on influenza and emerging pathogens called the PICFLU Network, Pediatric Intensive Care Influenza Network. We um, have been set up sort of waiting for a pandemic um, and had an IRB approved to collect data in case of a pandemic um, funded by the CDC in 2013. Um, we also had done this work in the last pandemic in 2009. We collected um, data on over 838 cases of children um, in the intensive care unit with 2009 H1N1. So we, um, so we were doing a study with the CDC on influenza vaccine effectiveness um, in, for, with Manish Patel um, and his group um, to pre in preventing severe disease in children, um, so critical illness in children. And, um, and then the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus emerged and the COVID-19 um, pandemic emerged and they funded us to start doing surveillance for them through this network that we had existing. And uh, so we started collecting data right away and um, and then the MISC emerged and very quickly we captured, were able to capture data on um, over 200 cases of MISC across the United States. So it was really great that we were prepared and, and we were able to um, 
to capture a lot of the states in the United States. Yeah, that was quite um, fortuitous that this was uh, already in place. And uh, you're being quite modest about your role in this, um, because I know that you have really been the, the person who has uh, spearheaded this entire effort. So um, I just wanted to, to say that. Um, uh, so why don't we why don't we talk a little bit about one of the um, about the study and what you found while looking into this? Yes, definitely. Um, so, so this is our we we wrote up the results of this study um, in this paper that was in New England Journal of Medicine on the 29th. It's online. It's open access. Um, all the data are there. Um, we um, Leora Feldstein from the CDC and Erica Rose are the first authors that did um, a lot of the work um, analyzing the data. Leora is a lead on the study, and we had the whole CDC COVID-19 response team, a large group of people helping us, and then most of these other people are critical care and other people at the sites and experts that are on this paper. Um, next slide, please. And I should so, say that these great graphics that you're about to see are from uh, Dr. Rob Parker, one of the intensivists at my institution. So I should, I want to call him out and give him credit for that. Um, yes. Yes. He is, this is that his graphic, this is really helpful because he was able to simplify the whole thing um, in this graphic um, that, uh, um, so the um, paper describes 186 MISC cases. We actually collected data on 213 cases, but at the same time, there's a report of 95 cases from New York State, and there was some overlap, so we took out the 27 cases that overlapped from New York State, because that was a New York Department of Health report. So if you put the two reports together, there's almost 300 cases um, with the New York report and ours um, showing very similar findings. Um, so we reported on 26 states, 53 centers. Um, and it was between March 15th and May 20th, with the bulk of our cases between mid-April to May 15th. Next slide, please. So this is the reporting across the states. You can see that even though we had already taken out quite a few cases in New York because of um, overlap with the New York report, we still had most the most cases in New York, New Jersey, um, Maryland, and then a lot in Michigan. Uh, Massachusetts was also high, the whole New England uh, region. Um, and then some states, um, you know, we didn't have sites in every single state. And some states, even though we had sites, didn't report cases yet. So, for example, our, our reported very few cases. Um, so, although we did have some sites in Florida, um, they didn't report. So, um, this was sort of a representation of this snapshot of, of where we got our cases from. Next slide. So I'll let Manish um, explain this slide to you. So uh, there's several things to point out here uh, on this slide. Uh, uh, one is the basic demographics of uh, MIS. And you can see nicely in the graphic that the mean age, the average age was uh, around eight. and majority of the children uh, fell between five and nine years of age. And then there were some who were older and some that were younger. Uh, the important thing to point out here is, uh, you know, why this is important. Uh, the syndrome overlaps with, you know, some of the syndromes that pediatricians are quite familiar with, uh, Kawasaki's disease being one of them, 
Um, and a majority of the children who are affected by Kawasaki's disease tend to be less than seven years of age, 70% are less than five years of age. And here, a majority of the children were older than uh, five years of age. So that is one interesting thing to point out. Uh, on the left side of uh, the uh, slide, you see a graphic over there, and I'll just sort of walk you through it. Uh, on the uh, bottom horizontal axis, uh, you see the dates going from beginning of March through about Mar May 20th. On uh, the, uh, the vertical axis, the y-axis, you see on the left side and the right side, two different numbers. On the left side is the percent positivity uh, for COVID tests. And on the right side are the number of MISC cases. And so in the, on the bar graphs, the dark shaded green graph, you see the MIS cases. And those are the 186 cases that are plotted out, what we call the epi curve, epidemiologic curve of the cases. Uh, and I don't have to explain that to you. You can see a nice clustering of the cases. That's one thing to point out. Majority of the cases happened after April 20th, I believe, April 18th. About 80 to 90% of the cases were uh, uh, in the last month uh, of the study. And then the second thing to point out is the light green mountain that you see over there. And that's your percent positivity of COVID in the same states where the cases came from. We took data from uh, commercial labs that are reported to us at CDC and plotted that out. And what you see that there is that the cases of MIS tend to increase while the peak of COVID activity decreases. And why this was important to us really was, you know, this is a new syndrome. Uh, it overlaps with some of these other syndromes. Uh, you know, and the first question we had for the pediatricians was, do you see, you know, a clustering of cases at this time of the year typically? And the answer was no, not this much of this type of syndrome. And, uh, you know, and I think the second piece was it happened on the descent of the COVID activity. So it was something unique, the two things that were telling us that this wasn't necessarily COVID, it is something that's happening in association with the COVID, but temporally a little uh, distant from the peak of the COVID activity. So it sort of shows that it's related to COVID, but probably something that's mechanistically different than what severe COVID or acute COVID is. So I'll stop there. Those are the sort of two points, and we'll talk about it a little bit more that we wanted to point out. And the third piece you see over there is that there was a male predominance of 62%. And I believe this is something that's reasonably similar to acute COVID as well, uh, though we don't have as much information in children yet uh, in terms of sex ratio. Over. So there was, looking at these two, um, so Dr. Patel, looking at these two uh, uh, slides, the one, this one and the one before. So this appears to be something that occurred after the peak in COVID infections in those, in those states, um, correct? About two to four weeks after the peak of those? Uh... That's absolutely correct, Chris. So, I, you know, there were some intriguing questions, uh, you know, at the outset, you know, when you see a clustering of these acutely ill, very sick children presenting and uh, being hospitalized to the ICU, the natural question was, is COVID activity in children increasing across these states? Uh, and this graphic show said no, 
really it's not a function of COVID activity increasing at the same time as the MIS. And so this kind of helped us. And that second thing was, yeah, it's a little distant uh, time-wise. With each one of these cases, we didn't have an onset time because we went back in time to find the cases and we're doing some sleuthing. Uh, You know, so the clinicians weren't quite sure now, what was the onset time? What they were admitted, say a child gets admitted with uh, MIS and they've had fever for five days. Was the onset that five days ago or was it the COVID infection that happened two or three weeks ago? And that was tough to tell. Right. And so this, I, I can tell you as someone trying to collect that data, it was uh, very challenging to, to get that out of families about did they have a mild infection a month ago? Um, and uh, on the ground, and maybe Dr. Randolph can speak to this a little bit, um, on the ground it was, it was um, very puzzling in real time about what, uh, what was going on. I completely agree, Chris. Um, you know, it, it's what, what's going on at the time when they, with the symptoms and what the symptoms are and the cardiac effects is, is uh, not as conf- you know, confusing as like, what was the history behind this? How long had they been sick? You know, was there something three weeks ago? Maybe, maybe not. That getting that accurately um, was very is very very challenging. And trying to figure out when were they first sick or exposed to the virus is really hard. So about a third, of, less than a third of these kids um, at, at, were positive PCR for the virus, so that they were still positive with the sample that's taken from their respiratory specimens. Approximately a third, and then. Another um, third were positive with antibodies, but negative for PCR. So that means they had clearly been exposed. And since the virus hasn't been around that long, it was fairly recent exposure. And then um, some of them, we just knew that they had been exposed to somebody who had had the virus at the time. Um, These antibody tests were, one, not available at all the hospitals. Um, they were just kind of emerging it of availability. And two, um, it was highly variable, their accuracy um, for testing antibodies. So at the time when this was happening, these, these antibody tests were kind of in the, their infancy. And so um, just because they were negative for the antibody test didn't necessarily rule it out. And also it takes a while to develop antibodies to SARS-CoV-2, um, in for, and so some of these tests usually don't pick them up until three weeks. So just because they weren't tested or didn't have a positive antibody test, you can't roll it out. So it's all very challenging to make the link for some of them to the SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, and um, one other point I wanted to make, if we can go back a slide, is that um, the, the parts where we can see the most infections, if we go back in time, a month or two ago. These were the areas where we had the most infections a couple of months ago in the New England area and Illinois and Michigan, am I correct? And then, you know, this might have implications for the other states that are starting to see uh, more uh, COVID infections now. But I know we'll get back to that more later. Um, So why don't we go ahead a couple of slides and we can keep talking about this population. Yeah, so, so, you know, one of the the pieces, so, so this is a syndrome and it's defined by multiple features. One of it is its children, so it's less than 21 years of age. They're severe, they're hospitalized. Um, and inflammation is one of the um, features of this syndrome. 
So this, so it could be highly variable what the features of inflammation are across these children. But as you can see, some of these are pretty common um, features like lymphopenia. So that means their lymphocyte count is suppressed. Neutrophilia, which means their neutrophil count is elevated, is also common. Um, many of these children were anemic um, and thrombocytopenic. Um, and they had elevated D-dimers, which um, is sort of a coagulation, showing some disruption of their coagulation system, but, and elevated fibrinogen, um, prolonged INRs. These are all coagulopathy, we call it. Um, many of them had very high uh, C-reactive protein, which is a biomarker for inflammation. Their ferritins were elevated for many of these. And then there were some cardiac markers, the troponin and the um, BNP, that were elevated in a lot of these children. So these, it was variable, but they all had, and it's part of the definition that they have to have laboratory evidence of uh, inflammation. But it was, many of them had multiple um, of these markers of inflammation. Next slide. So one of the things that's really important to note in this population that of the data that we collected is, and so one of the parts of the definition is that two or more organ systems need to be affected. It doesn't say what organ systems, just two or more organ systems, but the heart, the cardiovascular system was very commonly affected. So 80% had some cardiovascular involvement, that's CVI, cardiovascular involvement. Um, and elevated troponin or BNP was very common. Um, so about most of these kids got echocardiograms, which is an ultrasound of the heart, and um, a variety of, uh, of complications were seen on the echocardiogram. So um, many of them, the echocardiogram had normal um, to only mildly suppressed um, function. So 62% of them, the ejection fraction was over 55%, but some of them had moderate suppressed function of third and then about five percent of them had um, very suppressed function of their heart the ones with less than 30 percent of note about one in 12 of all of our cohort there um, had dilations of the coronary arteries um, of at least one of the major coronary arteries that was would be considered at the level of an aneurysm these are things often seen in children with Kawasaki disease. It's one of the complications and um, aneurysms related to Kawasaki disease is one of the most common causes of acquired heart disease now in the United States. So, you know, this was concerning the, the fairly high rate of dilations of the, coronary, of the coronary arteries. And then rhythm disturbances were also seen um, Almost half of these kids needed vasopressor support, um, some type of support to uh, support their heart. And then 4% um, needed to be supported on the heart lung bypass machine, the ECMO machine. Uh, Dr. Randolph, um, the, uh, we've talked about Kawasaki's a couple of times. Um, I know that as a uh, treating physician, when we first started seeing these kids, that was something that we were thinking about. Is this a Kawasaki, atypical Kawasaki's disease? Um, is this a... Um, yes. Um, so can I you think... talk a little bit about what Kawasaki's is? And, and... Yes, yes. 
I think in two slides we. Um, oh, do we talk about that in two slides? I think okay. so. Yeah. Um, let me see. Um, do you want to go two slides up? Let me see if that's the Kawasaki. Oh no, we don't talk about that. Okay, that's so right. We'll talk about that then. Um, so that's in the last that slide, Dr. Randolph. Oh, it's the last there's, slide. There's a question from the audience asking about any neurologic impacts as you're talking about all the. Yeah. So why don't we go to the next slide? Um, and this is the other organ. So remember two or more organs needed to be affected. Um, and so the most common uh, thing that was reported in all these cases was the GI system, gastrointestinal. So this was, um, was very, very um, common that they presented with abdominal pain, diarrhea, vomiting, um, you know, um, the, these were, the, it was pretty significant symptoms. And that was probably the most common, the affected organ system, okay? The second one was- And that's not typical of Kawasaki's disease. Yes, it's not as typical as of Kawasaki disease. So, you know, all of these kids were febrile, um, mostly for multiple days. So fever's part of the um, definition, but most, the great, almost all of these were three days or more. And a lot of them were like five days or more. So I want to say, didn't some of these children have even go to surgery for exploratory laparotomies, thinking that they might have had an acute appendicitis and other things like that? There were some cases, definitely, of um, of appendicitis in this cohort of patients, um, but not not as many. Um, at, you know, I know that there's some sort of hearsay about the appendicitis um, issue because uh, COVID affects the bowel, um, and so we're looking into that with our broader cohort. It didn't stand out. Dr. Patel time. put up a number two, so apparently there were yeah, two. two. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, Dr. Randolph, one yeah. other quick question from the audience. They're asking um, uh, if we know that this is not a different, another differential diagnosis and not simply something other than um, COVID-19, but it seems like what you were saying earlier is that um, we have PCR and antibody evidence of this as well. So there, so that's a very good question. So, um, in um, two thirds of these, um, we had clear, you know, laboratory evidence of an association. Um, in the other third, we um, had an association where they were exposed and the antibody testing either wasn't done or, you know, there wasn't a standard um, assay that was, um, that, that, you know, even if they were negative, it could have been in the window of when they may not have made antibodies yet. But, you know, we can't rule out. And then we have this temporal association that this, both in England, in New York, and in our population across the United States is temporally associated with the peak of af being after the peak of the COVID-19 activity. Being but, two to four weeks after the peak in that yes, area. Yes. So, um, but, you know, you can't rule out that this isn't some type of interaction or there isn't some type of reactivity to some other antigen in the child system that's cross-reacting somehow. It's very unclear what's causing this, um, you know, but there is definitely a strong association of, of repeatedly in multiple populations now with uh, COVID-19. Um, so just going through these other uh, symptoms here. Mucocutaneous was very common. Those are features that are common in Kawasaki disease. Um, and uh, the um, respiratory system, you know, was um, not uncommon. 
Um, however, very only 20% of these uh, children on average were uh, received invasive mechanical ventilation. So that's very different than acute COVID. Acute COVID, um, the, the patients in the ICU frequently get intubated and require uh, mechanical ventilation. So, you know, um, you know, so in many of these, the lungs were not that involved. So that's different than acute COVID. Um, as far as the respiratory system, we're doing a deeper um, investigation on the respiratory system now to try to figure out the difference between could some of these have been acute COVID with organ other organs dysfunctional, um, and how many of these were, um, you know, MISC versus what is there a way to tell the difference between the two? Um, so that's requiring more investigation. And then uh, neurologic was. You know, we were looking for fairly severe um, symptoms, but it wasn't reported as commonly, and it, and renal was also um, not as common. But some of these neurologic, um, you know, uh, reports were severe, though. So we were kind of looking for the more severe, the um, severe renal dysfunction and um, severe neurologic um, um, effects. Um, so there, so there was a broad range. And this was the different um, organ systems that were involved. Um, next slide. Adrian, can I uh, yeah. make a comment real quick on that slide? Yeah, you want to go back? Why don't we go back to that slide? This slide right here. The one thing I would add uh, to Nancy's question uh, from the chat of how do you tell the difference between COVID and MIS? Is MIS just, uh, you know, another name for acute COVID, right? That's a great question like you were alluding to in... I think the fundamental question here is why does it matter? And it matters because uh, of what is the mechanism? Uh, if it is MIS, the thinking is that the mechanism, the pathogenesis, what's happening underneath is different than what the mechanism or pathogenesis would be for acute COVID. That's, that's the fundamental reason to sort it apart. And I think the points you were making, it seems, as you were saying this, it came to me that acute COVID in adults, at least, we know pretty well now happens, you know, the severe disease happens during some time in the second week, and it's still predominantly a primor, primary viral pneumonia with bad, whited out lungs requiring a lot of respiratory support. Some go on to get these extra pulmonary manifestations but most uh, still have a primary lung involvement. Here, it was the complete opposite, uh, you know, that they primarily had some of these other involvements. And specifically, I think the key thing you pointed out, which mucocutaneous is not something we see in the adults across the literature. It's just not well documented. Uh, and then the cardiovascular, yes, it happens, but not to such an extent. And so I think those were the two things that makes it think like these cohort is truly a new syndrome, in addition to that temporal relationship you mentioned two to four weeks after. But anyway, I just wanted to point that out. That's great, because I think that leads us right into treatment. So I'm sorry, Nancy. Oh, yeah, thank you for that, Dr. Patel. Um, I just wanted to segue and jump on that um, with one other question from the chat. Um, were there any signs of pulmonary edema from cardiomyopathy in these children? That's a very good question. Um, so, um, 
you know, as you if as you if you want to go back to one slide, you can see the um, degree of effect on the heart, and that um, a lot of them didn't have um, suppression of their um, pump function. The ejection fraction on the echocardiogram was um, mildly um, depressed, um, if anything. And then thir a third of them, it was a moderately depressed, and um, but only a small number had really severe depression, where you would really get um, such severe depression that you you know would get pulmonary edema and other side effects. Um, so it, it's unclear um, you know how many of them had some pulmonary edema, but the degree that they need would need intubation and things like that was fairly low. And I should also add that heart failure in kids is a little different than heart failure in adults too. So that may explain a little bit of the difference. Um, so why don't we move on to treatments? Because I think if we think the pathophysiology is different um, and this is a post-infectious uh, inflammatory syndrome, then the treatments obviously are gonna differ too. So I'll, I'll let you, whoever wants to jump in and talk about the treatments. Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about that and I'll let Manish talk about the next slide. Um, so, um, you know, there is some overlap here with Kawasaki's um, disease, which is also a syndrome. Um, and um, IVIG is given very commonly in um, Kawasaki disease to prevent uh, the coronary artery aneurysms from, um, you know, to try to treat that and prevent it from worsening. And many of them also got a second dose, one in five. So that was one of the most common um, uh, features there. Um, so, um, and then about half got steroids. Okay. And then there were some cytokine inhibitors, either Anakinra or the IL-6 inhibitors. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't as common, but it wasn't uncommon. Um, about half, so coagulopathy was very, very common. And about half of these kids got systemic anticoagulation. Uh, Chris can comment on that. I know that, um, you know, even prophylactic anticoagulation in adults is, is standard of care in intensive care unit patients, but in children, you know, prophylactic anticoagulation is not um, as commonly used. And these patients were getting anticoagulation because they were so coagulopathic. Their blood was very, um, you know, it, it, they had high uh, tendency to clot and so these were all the different treatments that were, were given. Um, now, why these patients? I just saw a question in the chat, you know, why were they given these? Um, now, these were clinical decisions. Our surveillance registry um, just um, captures the data. It doesn't guide people to do anything specific. Um, this was just what was being hap happening across all these sites. We're doing an additional evaluation to look at sort of variability in use of these treatments because some sites tended to use steroids more or these uh, cytokine inhibitors more and other sites um, and but it was very common for all sites to use IVIG. Most of these kids were in the intensive care unit and um, they did receive a high level of interventions in the intensive care unit um, and then uh, most of these kids, the average hospitalization was a week. However, um, a lot of these kids were still hospitalized at the time uh, that we stopped the study because we needed to cut off the data at a certain point. 
And so many were still in the hospital at that time. And um, however, those that were discharged, uh, you know, those that, um, you know, were discharged were alive, um, the great majority of them at the time of discharge and only a tiny number um, of patients um, died uh, that we collected um, this, these data on. And we followed up a lot more of these other patients. And so death is very uncommon. Most of these children recover to hospital discharge. Any questions about this slide, um, Chris? Another, no, I don't think so. Oh, you want to say something, Dr. Patel? Well, no, no, I just noted that the seven days, I think is another, you know, trying to sleuth together to this question, MIS versus acute COVID. You know, seven days, is, they recovered pretty fast, the ones who did recover, I would say. The ones, you know, acute COVID uh, with whiteout lungs, and as you all know, <laughs> takes a little while uh, to get them off the vents and recover. Yeah, so I And I can tell yeah. you, in, as on the ground again, as in real time, it did, um, you know, we can see that there's old people. Yeah, um... So one of the um, questions I saw here um, in the chat uh, or in the Q and A um, from Patricia Frost was uh, whether um, children who were obese ended up um, having more severe um, disease. That's a really good question. It's something we can answer with our data set. We didn't actually look at association of the risk factors with the outcomes because uh, um, in our first paper because we um, you know, we're, some of these kids were still in the hospital at the time we stopped the data collection, but we're looking at it now. Um, that's a good point about the obesity. Um, so the great majority of these children were previously healthy. And, um, you know, of the ones, so seven, over 70% were previously healthy kids. That's different than the acute COVID in children that gets in the hospital and especially in the ICU. Most of those kids have a lot of, um, underlying severe medical um, problems. Um, these are mostly healthy kids at baseline and about 8% of them had a doctor's diagnosis of obesity. But when we measured their body mass index using the height and weight, about a, almost a third of them were, um, you know, about 30% met the criteria for, um, for obesity using the body mass index. Um, and um, so that's important to note. Um, we haven't looked at whether those who were obese tended to be more severe. Um, so that's that was a good question. Dr. Uh, Randolph. Yeah. Um, so in, did you look at the ICU population and see if any of these treatments were associated with shorter length of stay? Yes, so that's um, a really good question. Um, we um, were, we are collecting, you know, more cases and Look, and um, now that's one of the things we're looking at the data in is trying to figure out, can you tell anything with an association with um, treatment? Um, the thing is that, you know, this isn't a prospective cohort study where we captured all the cases in the United States. And um, this is a case, these are a case series. And so it is a little bit risky to make, um, determinations about which treatments work and don't work from from just a, a case series like this of cases that were reported. Um, I can let Manish 
uh, maybe comment on that from an epidemiologic perspective? You know, I think that's a great question, Chris, and I think that's going to happen. There are already efforts globally to do that. Uh, the biggest example, I think, for what Adrian was saying, uh, how tricky it is in the observational side to do that is kind of what we call confounding by indication, which is what Adrian mentioned, uh, which is that it could be that those who are already on the road to recovery are getting the treatments and the ones who are sick or dying uh, do not end up getting the treatments. And so when you compare them, you automatically come up with a you know, false, uh, false uh, linkage that treatment is improving outcome or vice versa. And so it gets very, but I think you know, there will be efforts to do that uh, in the future to see if there's something that's so obvious that uh, one treatment is working better than the other. Uh, and, then, and then the second point is I think there are probably going to be efforts if especially the cases continue to grow uh, is to try to randomize them into treatments, which might already be going on at some of your sites. So can we talk about this? We've, we're more than halfway through the webinar and this hasn't come up yet. Can we talk about how common this is? Um, at least in my state, in Connecticut, there's I think about 800,000 kids and I think we had 10 kids, we've had 10 kids so far in both um, both uh, sites. So um, can we talk about how, how rare this is? Do one of you want to comment on that? So um, that's a really good question. And that's the question that we're getting uh, repeatedly. Um, it's really hard to know what the denominator is as far as how many kids in the United States are positive or, you know, have had exposure and are positive either by antibodies or PCR to, um, to SARS-CoV-2 um, because we really haven't, um, you know, done the widespread testing um, and captured every case. So without the denominator, it's really hard to know if a child was exposed, what's the overall risk. And I think it, that's impossible to, to say, but I would say, and I'll let Manish comment on this, that overall, this is rare. Um, I wish that I had something to tell people like, oh, these kids are more at risk than these other kids. And, you know, if we just followed up all these kids, we could pick up all the cases. But these are mostly previously healthy kids. Um, and overall, we think it's very uh, rare, um, this presentation. Yeah, Chris, I think that is uh, the next million dollar question is to try to tease that apart. If you look at the uh, sister paper, if you will, in New York, New York's a good place to do that because, you know, it's a closed population and you really need uh, what we call the denominator. And there's two denominators. Uh, Adrian alluded to, you alluded to how many infections are happening. So uh, if 100 people are getting infected uh, with uh, SARS-CoV-2, what proportion of those 100 go on to get MIS uh, in we don't really know how many kids are getting infected, uh, you know, uh, uh, yet because it's, you know, the testing issues and the symptomatic and asymptomatic issues and those sort of things. Uh, the, we do know the denominator of the entire population, and I think that's what New York did and came up with around 1 in 50,000 uh, less than 21. That's not a good way to typically do incidents, uh, be, uh, you know, to compare it with other diseases. So I would say it's like one in a million. So it's sort of like Guillain-Barre, I would say, uh, 
you know, a little bit more than, um, I mean, a little bit less than intussusception, uh, probably something similar to what KD is, a relatively rare uncommon event, yes. But still uh, troubling because it's a lot of infections going on, and so it's concentrated in a short time period as opposed to, you know, something that happens year in seasonally over. Any HLH association found um, is a question from the audience. Yeah, that's a really good um, good question. So we sort of have an overlap in one of our um, figures. Um, I don't know if it's on. Can you just go to the next slide? I just want to see if by chance that we it's in the. Um, yeah, so that one. No. So there's a in our paper on this table that has to do with Kawasaki disease features. Um, we also talk a bit about like these other um, macrophage activation syndrome type features um, in in some of our tables in the paper. And so um, those are, there definitely is some overlap there with this, with both Kawasaki disease features and macrophage activation syndrome type features. Um, so, uh, you know, but 61%, as you can see with this um, table here, did not have the Kawasaki meet criteria for either complete. So if they have four to five KD features, they're quote unquote complete Kawasaki disease. If they have two to three features plus labs, they are incomplete Kawasaki disease. If they have the, um, the coronary artery aneurysms, they also meet the criteria for Kawasaki disease. But, um, but these other categories, 61% did, weren't in either of those categories. So there's a lot of overlap with these other syndromes, both Kawasaki disease, macrophage activation um, syndrome. So this is, uh, you know, this is all um, the, um, you know, these are important uh, things to note. So um, another question that I had for maybe Dr. Patel can answer this one. Um, what what implications does this have for policymakers about reopening schools and generally reopening uh, states again? I only give you the easy ones, Vinish. <laughs> well, if I were the world, I probably know. Uh, it, it, it's I think the policies are completely. Uh, those policies do not change. I mean, I think those have to be driven by infection. In the community, I mean, this—you know—the the obvious problem here is a problem for the collective uh, population. You know, um, clearly, this is a problematic complication for children. It is uncommon, but that said, when it's your child, that uncommonness doesn't matter. Um, so, you know, those decisions obviously have to be local. However, those local decisions affect the state, and the state decisions affect the country. So, I think that's. Uh, it, this in and of itself does not change the policy as much, but the infection rates, you know, do matter. Um, and I think as you can follow the news, uh, we are seeing increasing infection rates uh, in many parts of the country. And that leads, I think, to more cases of MIS uh, invariably. Uh, over. Dr. Patel, that, that leads me to my next question um, from the chat, because one that is one of the questions from the chat is they're talking, someone from Texas, about the um, incidence of cases in Texas right now, and do we expect to see more MISC coming up in kids in that area and for the South in general? 
Great question. Uh, I would say that I don't have a, you know, sort of that magic eight ball that I wish we all had, you know, <laughs> that allows us to glimpse into the future. We're learning a lot. Uh, however, I think what we learn, you know, from medicine, from observations, from epidemiology is the past informs the future. And here, I think that graphic we showed earlier is probably the most telling, uh, you know, that shows that there the MIS does track infection rates. Chris mentioned majority of the uh, initial cases were concentrated in the Northeast. Why? That's where the infections were. Uh, so I think if the past informs the future, uh, it, you will see more MIS cases in areas with increasing uh, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2 infections. It's one of those, you're in the, in, in the, you're in the, hospital and a parent asks you a question, you say, well, I can't tell you for sure what's going to happen with your child going forward, but the last hundred I took care of had this happen. Over. So, so to that, um, as we've all seen in the news, um, they have made national mandates or statewide mandates for masking. Um, and do you guys have any sense of that in pediatrics and how that would work? That one of the questions um, from the chat box is specifically asking about that and, and what your uh, implications from this study would be for the for that. I'll I'll let uh, Man Manish answer that one as well. Um, uh, Manish, do you want to answer that? I think I'm probably not well suited to. That's totally outside my. I know there are a lot of people who are thinking about this specific topic. Uh, yeah, I think that um, as far I think that following the best practice guidelines that are recommended at the time for trying to prevent spread is is of course uh, important. And right now, masking is one of the recommendations and. Uh, and so I think that it's important to adhere to whatever is the recommendations, um, you know, for preventing spread. And uh, most of the places are recommending wearing masks. And it may be that when kids do go back to school that they'll be making that recommendation. So there is, it's hard to get data on these things, but more as more data emerge, then they're making these recommendations more based on evidence. So I think you just have to follow the the local public health and the state public health and the CDC guidelines, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics is putting out recommendations for children and other organizations. Right. And I can, I can piggyback on that too. Yes, please, um, the, uh, I think that uh, it's important to realize that this is a post-infectious, this appears to be a post-infectious syndrome in children. So the best way to prevent um, MISC in children is to reduce the overall incidence in the community. So if you, this is not, you can't catch MISC from another kid with MISC. Um, the only way to prevent this is to reduce the spread. And the best way, the best tool we have to reduce the spread is to wear your mask. Um, so wear your mask. That's all I have to say. Hey, and I concur, Chris. I think, uh, you know, to go back to the evidence that Adrian was pointing out, uh, you know, in the past, uh, there was a lot of, you know, discussion amongst the infectious disease community. You know, if you wear a surgical mask, you know, does that actually enhance your infection probability because you sort of scratch and you do this? 
Now, I think there's been a fair amount of experience, particularly from uh, the eastern part of the world, where they are frequently used. And there's a nice uh, meta-analysis and a systematic review of uh, this in Lancet. Whether it applies to children, it's tough. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I'm not sure why children would be different uh, in this setting than uh, the adults. Uh, and it's very effective, actually, based on the meta-analysis. Uh, nearly 80% effective in uh, reducing spread of uh, uh, infectious viruses similar to SARS-CoV-2, such as SARS-CoV-1, MERS, influenza. Over. Other questions from the chat, Nancy? Not One of the questions that we have um, is talking about um, uh, more DVT or PE in any of these patients and one versus the other. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so that's a really good question on that. What on one of the slides, it has the complications that are non, um, cardiac it, you know, um, the thing to remember is, is that in adults, DVT and PE is very, is very common at baseline in critically ill patients, which is why they're all on this prophylactic anticoagulation because it's a, it's a known complication, very common. Children don't have it as frequently. So it could be, you know, once they pass puberty, it becomes a little bit more common in the critically ill patients, but it's not that common compared to adults. But we did see some so even though we didn't see a lot, um, there were definitely some um, reported cases and coagulopathy is, a very, is very common in these patients. So a lot of them did get anticoagulation. Thank you. Um, another question that came up is um, in terms of follow-up for these kids. So I know you made the mention that the study um, some of these kids were, many of them were still hospitalized um, mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. that the, the study was shut off or cut off so we could publish this. But um, what have you seen in terms of these kids? Is it general pediatric follow-up? Is there more yep. imaging? Yep. Is there cardiac follow-up? What, yeah, no, that's, an out, that's the perfect question um, because that's something we're working on now um, with, um, you know, to try to figure out both clinical follow-up as well as like for research purposes to follow them up in some kind of study protocol to fit, make sure are these, is the heart going back to normal? Um, and, um, and the three things that we're looking at and or need to look at and the pediatric heart network um, and other NIH funded networks are, are designing studies to help that, um, to look at um, that. Um, are both the function of the heart, the pump function, the electrical activity in the heart, because some of these children developed heart block and other rhythm disturbances, and they, they were still present at discharge. And then the big, uh, you know, the biggest concern are these coronary artery aneurysms. So really, um, those are really important to follow up and make sure that they don't uh, get worse. These kids who do have the aneurysms are on treatment to prevent like aspirin and other um, treatments. And so um, cardiology needs to follow them up and do repeat echocardiograms and other things. And so clinically, they recommend these follow-up um, pretty similar to like the Kawasaki follow-up for that, where they get like them in the hospital, depending on how severe, and then they get them at like 
three, three weeks a month and then they get them again, um, depending on how severe um, and they keep following the child. So those are things that are being developed, and, but, but it's essential. Any data that we have on convalescent plasma um, used in these kids? I know that's something that in the adult world we've used, and I didn't know if there was any data on that in the kids or if that was any part of the study. Yeah, we captured data on it. I can't remember the exact number. It was like 5% or less that did receive convalescent plasma from patients who had had SARS-CoV-2 and they had high titers. So we did, um, some did get convalescent plasma. Another question from the chat, um, and it was similar to a question that I had written down for earlier in terms of, um, you all have said that this is a post-infectious syndrome. So in terms of children playing with each other um, in sports or at the pool, it's not something that one child is going to give another child. Just well, they can catch COVID from each other. Correct. But they, Correct. Catch, they, they shouldn't be able to catch this from them. Correct. Okay. So, Thank um, you for clarifying. As we're wrapping up, I wanted to know, um, Dr. Randolph, what are your next, um, what's, what's your next steps here? What are, your, what are you planning on going from here with this? Yeah, that's a great question. So Manish and I um, have, we're continuing the surveillance registry. Um, our goal is to capture data on, uh, you know, about 1,500 um, children um, and young adults who have um, COVID-19 um, or MISC. Um, to understand it better. Um, and then we have a prospective study where we consent the patients and we get blood samples and we follow them up with interviews and we're trying to enroll patients in that so that we can understand the mechanisms. What is driving the MISC? What is driving the severe acute COVID-19 in the children? And um, look at a whole broad panel of um, workup for the immune system and how the immune system's reacting here to try to understand what's underlying, what's triggering this, what's associated. So those are our things that we're working with NIH to help design, um, help them design follow-up studies, um, especially for the heart, which is urgent. Um, and But for, there's multiple organs involved here and we want to um, we want to follow up the whole patient and figure out how this affects them longer term because those will be, and then it gets to the final thing is we need to do trials to intervene here and figure out what's the best treatment and how do, how do you both diagnose this quickly and then treat it and, and to give more targeted treatment than these broad-based immune um, suppressive medications. Thank you. So um, I wondered if, uh, as our last few minutes, if you had any final um, take-home points that you wanted to um, to uh, to repeat again, um, or any final thoughts. Um, uh, we can switch to Dr. Patel here. Well, thank you very much for having us. By the way, uh, you know it's been wonderful. I think the questions that were raised here are exactly the questions we're grappling with. This is. New syndrome in the sense that, uh, you know, might be something like uh, some of the things you mentioned before, such as Kawasaki's disease mechanistically. We have to figure that out. Uh, so to do that, the fundamental questions are, what is MIS, right? And so get the case definition right. And to do that, we need more information. We need to do the sleuth work uh, that we've kind of talked about uh, based on the questions 
can we narrow that case definition down without having a blood test that tells us what MIS is? So once we get that clinical definition right, because right now initially we sort of threw that big net out and said, you know, get us these kids that look like this. But now we're learning more so we can narrow that down. So I think those are the types of studies we're doing next. And that can inform pathogenesis, which can inform the trials and the treatments. And then tracking it. Tracking it's very important. That's what Adrian and the network that you guys are doing is very important. Collecting collectively gathering that information. Uh, uh, ultimately, vaccines will uh, have to be the solution for this virus. I think that's quite clear. And there's a good roadmap for that. And this will be quite relevant for that uh, as the vaccines come on the horizon to monitor this. Uh, and hopefully this reduces the incidence uh, of MIS through vaccination and prevention. Over. Well, I know everyone at the next police meeting will be lining up to buy you a drink once the vaccine uh, gets, gets out there. Dr. Randolph, any final thoughts from you? No, I think that, um, you know, all the, the question I get most commonly from parents and other people who've, because who've, this has been in the news, is that, that people are really scared, you know, could this happen to my child? How do I know? I think it is important still to, to as you mentioned, Chris, that this is rare. Um, we do know the common symptoms that, that did present in these children, that gastrointestinal was very common with persistent fevers. You know, most of them had fever for over three days. These kids were very sick. Um, they would have gone to the doctor to be seen. Um, and um, so, you know, I think that it, you don't need to worry about it from every single, you know, fever that your child has or a rash, et cetera. Um, but it is important for people to be aware, for pediatricians to be aware. And if, if you have any concerns, it's important to talk to your pediatrician and explain what, um, what's going on. So those are just the things I wanted to reassure people that it is very, you know, it's scary, but it is very rare. All right, um, and uh, we had a question. Can we see a copy of the paper in, um, can we have a copy of the paper? I posted a link yeah. to the paper um, in, the, in the chat just a second ago. Um, this paper is open access from New England Journal. Um, you can look it up at um, New England Journal of, excuse me, uh, www.nejm.org. And uh, it's, on the, it's on the front page, um, or you can follow the link in the chat. Um, I want to thank uh, Dr. Randolph and Dr. Patel and Dr. Stewart for a really interesting hour. I learned a lot and had a great time doing it. And uh, I want to thank you as a parent and uh, as a, as a pedi pediatric ICU provider for the research you guys are doing. Um, it's really helping uh, kids. And uh, Dr. Randolph, I have admired your research for quite some time. So I'm thrilled to be able to, to have you on this uh, webinar. So thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Chris. Aww. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. All right, and we'll see you all next week. Um, next week's uh, chess webinar um, is uh, to be announced, but I can give you a spoiler. It's going to be on hypoxia and, um, and, uh, and acute COVID infections in adults. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.